Biltmore Cabaret is your home for great live music in Vancouver. Saturday, July 9th, check out Kentucky Hard Rockers Coliseum with opening acts Spirals and Scarebrow. This is an early show with doors at 7 p.m. $10 advance tickets are available at Biltmore, Zulu, Scrape, and Scratch Records, as well as online at ticketweb.ca. July 12th, it's a finger-licking good Toony Tuesday with local favorites, the Shilohs. Capital Six and Time Cops will warm up the stage. Doors are at 9 p.m. and admission is $2. <laughs> Friday, July 29th, don't miss the CD release party of Vancouver's Garage Soul Phenom's Chains of Love. It's going to be like you tried to revisit the heyday of 60s girl groups, but then your time machine broke and you ended up somewhere better. July 30th, San Francisco's Ty Seagull will bring the psychedelic party along with fellow Californians Audacity. This is an early show with doors at 8pm. $10 advance tickets are available at Zulu, Scratch and Red Cat Records, as well as online at ticketweb.ca. To learn more, visit BiltmoreCabaret.com. Now repeat after me. Bugger off. Bugger off. Sod. Sod. Bloody. Bloody. Now put them all together. Bugger off, you bloody sod. Bugger off, you bloody sod. Okay, you're in. Let's smash things up. Every Saturday, from noon to 1 p.m., listen to Generation Annihilation on CITR 101.9 FM, UBC Radio, in Vancouver. Hi, this is Burt Reynolds. You listen to Wiener's Barbecue, and they're not giving me a damn thing for this.
for the cat, get back, I'm going in. It don't matter where I'm at, anywhere I rap, get throw, put throw in the wind. Lyrically, I'm crack, guarantee on wax, you never hit this flow again. One of a kind, go get it, when I spit it, admit it, I'm the shit, I'm going to win. You can trust me when I say that, I've been doing this shit since way back. I'm in the VIP with a haze at, lounge in the clouds, laid back. When my feet kicked up, couple J's rap, feeling like I'm the shit, you can hate that. But this payback, where the stage at? I got a crazy flow, I need a straight jacket in the back room. Boom, know the burrows here, better clear the room When the lights go down, prepare to move To the sounds of a totally different groove Iconoclast crew, motherfucker, what? Walk around the club, it'll fingers up Anybody me mugging, I'ma fuck them up Get treated like a blunt and bust them up Welcome to Wiener's Barbecue here on 101.9 FM CITR Radio. Lots to get to on the show today. Um, opening us up there was actually Get Down Dubboro by Dub Killer. And for you TV fans, on Sunday during the episode of Breaking Bad, maybe the best show on television, that was the, man, <laughs> Jim Mullins with that. We're going to get to Jim in a second. This was the song playing at Jesse Pinkman's party during that episode. So that was the one, the uh, the three-day party. Um, on the show today, uh, we're going to have Emmanuel Shrieky. She is Sloan E's girlfriend on Entourage, uh, considered to be one of the most beautiful women on the planet. She'll be with us. But before that, to start off the show... Uh, man, are you considered to be one of the most beautiful men on the planet? We have Jim Mullen, who is the Director of Marketing and Media Relations for the Vanier Cup. He's a voting member of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. He is also the play-by-play announcer for Shaw TV of Canada West Football. Jim, are you considered to be one of the most beautiful men on the planet? Uh, considering that I'm only on Shaw, uh, I think that may give you the answer. <laughs> uh, uh, so, Jim, uh, you said maybe, so you are a Breaking Bad fan. Oh, I'm a huge Breaking Bad fan. I, and, and matter of fact, 
You know, I, I used to be a Mad Men first fan and a Breaking Bad fan 1A, but because of uh, Matthew Weiner's uh, problems with uh, negotiating a, a, a fair deal with AMC and the, and the constant delays, it, it's, uh, it's easy to disengage with the Mad Men. And uh, and uh, and fully buy into the Breaking Bad. I've been a Breaking Bad fan since uh, since day one. Uh, in terms of uh, of writing swerves and uh, and, uh, and and the way the show is put together visually, it's uh, so thoughtful in its composition. And, it, and the great thing about it is following the story arc and, and, and seeing how these uh, how these characters transform over this journey is it's it may be the, the the most compelling show on television since the sopranos and personally i'd put it quite far ahead of the sopranos to uh, tell you the truth uh jim uh the Mad Men contract dispute i believe that they've done four seasons now it'll be starting up again in march it was all over like episodes one and 12 however many whatever the finale is how many episodes there are maybe it's i think it's 12 but i could be wrong are going to be regular length episodes. Every other episode will be 45 seconds less is the number I believe I read, but those extra 45 seconds will be available on DVD. That is pretty much what the contract dispute ended up getting in the end. So, well, But it will be on in... It's good, Daryl, that they didn't have to uh, cut characters. <laughs> well, that was, there was talk yeah. about gassing two or three characters from from the ensemble, and there was talk about further product placement. And, you know, the, the one thing that Mad Men uh, does quite well is product placement because they're in the middle of an advertising firm, and uh, and, and they managed to, to, to work their way in uh, with, with, with several products uh, that we see today. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's good to know that they're, they're finally on the rails. Personally, I think uh, Matthew Weiner didn't want to compete with Breaking Bad, and that's one of the reasons no. he stretched this whole thing out. That that that's my I, secret conspiracy theory in I, all of this. I think the only reason Breaking Bad is on right now is the Mad Men delay. I don't think they would both be on at the same time. It's the same network, Jim. Yeah, well, and I think they need to spread their assets around because I think the the other uh, shows that the, they've tried to uh, pull off. Uh, the, um, the Rubicon comes to mind, haven't been full-on hits. The Walking Dead is is a, a surprisingly good show and is pulling in numbers that are that are Mad Men-like. Uh, that being said, um, quality TV with a 13-episode <laughs> story arc doesn't necessarily pull in the, the numbers like a two-and-a-half men uh, or an American Idol does. Now, uh, we've gotten into television with Jim, and Jim, so, you know, Matt, uh, Walking Dead, they've got like three times as much as Mad Men. They're killing That's right. Yeah, they're That's killing. right. They do much better. Uh, you know, uh, I guess 60 style is eclipsed by zombies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with us right now, Jim Mullen. Jim, we, we got into television there. How about that, hey? Well, you, you, you touched on my, uh, on my favorite network and my favorite TV <laughs> show, so... I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe uh, I should switch into work mode here and start <laughs> pitching the Vanier Cup for you. Well, Jim, uh, last thing, last thing is I. You mentioned that you're at the BC Lion Games right now, and earlier in the day, you mentioned to me that whatever you mentioned that you had to shake babies' hands because you're running the Vanier Cup at the BC Lions Games, and that 
you've always wanted a punk band to be called the Baby Shakers. I found it today online, the Baby Shakers. Um, they were they evolved in the early summer of 1999 in Canberra, Australia. But just so you know, Jim, it wasn't until the end of 1999 that the Baby Shakers came into full formation with the entrance of the electric guitarists and sisters, Kath and Laura. I tried. You know what? You know what? I was spreading that Baby Shakers thing around for quite some time. And guess where I was in the spring of 1999? Canberra, Australia? Damn straight. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may have planted a seed down there. We can I don't know what you think, but I think I planted a seed. We can only hope. Um, Jim, I tried to play the Baby Shakers, and I listened to it earlier at home. I was going to intro you with the Baby Shakers, but it won't play. It won't play on this computer. So. Wow. I just thought I'd oh, let that, that, that's, that's sad. You, you're going to have to work on the old tech there at the mighty CIT. Right? Uh, we, we do what we can, Jim. We do what we can. Uh, with us on the line right now, Jim Mullen. Let's get his work hat on. He's director of marketing and media relations for what will be the 47th Vanier Cup taking place Friday, November 25th at BC Place, the first time ever. It will be in Vancouver. Of course, it will be preceding the 99th Grey Cup, which will be on that Sunday. So, Jim, um, the Vanier Cup, quite frankly, quite a success the last two years. They had 16,000 people, over 16,000 people for the game last year in Laval when Laval beat Calgary 29-2. to That was a home crowd game, but Jim, uh, tell us about the Vanier Cup this year and what you guys got planned. Well, I I think the one thing that's significant about those two games that were played in Quebec, first of all, is that the first game uh, featured uh, Queens and Calgary, and uh, I think they actually got slightly better uh, uh, reception in terms of audience by about a few hundred uh, than uh, than the game did with the Laval Rouge or playing on their home field the following year. I, I think the weather may have had something to do with that. Um, here in the with uh, in BC Place, it's going to be the first championship game played ever in BC Place, and I think that's very significant. The second thing is is that we've got a uh, slightly uh, different target uh, group that uh, we can focus on uh, with the Vanier Cup, with the lower ticket prices, uh, in that uh, the Grey Cup sold out already. So those, those 300 tickets, $300 tickets are gone. Uh, but the uh, but the Vanier Cup tickets are going to come in at, uh, at a much uh, lower and affordable rate, and uh, I think it's going to be the chance for uh, students to get out and uh, see a game BC Place from a very good vantage point. I think it's going to give uh, families an opportunity to get out and see the game uh, from a, a very good vantage point, and the opportunity, uh, once you get out of the stadium, to engage in the Grey Cup Festival, which will be kicking into full swing that Friday night as we roll through the weekend. So, in terms of um, in terms of placing a game, uh, a university football game uh, at BC Place, I couldn't think of a better time to do it uh, than than the year that uh, BC Place is uh, reopening, probably under another name. And uh, and uh, trust me, I've uh, toured the facility. Uh, as a matter of fact, I took two tours of the facility last week. And it will be a very different facility than the one we became accustomed to that, uh, that uh, operated for 
26 years. Still wish he got to build his uh, Gastown field there, Jim. Kerfoot. Well, yeah, you know, that would I think that would be good for soccer. It'll be interesting to see how that um, uh, new BC Place facility works for soccer, but there are um, a few wrinkles that they have in terms of the seating configuration for soccer. They, they can bring seats down to the field to make it a, a more intimate atmosphere uh, specifically for soccer. But on the football side, uh, people want to be up in the seats. They want to look down on the action. And uh, we know in terms of sight lines at uh, BC Place uh, for football, it's a fantastic facility. And uh, I think with uh, the airflow, I think with the uh, louvers, with the uh, LED panels in them, which will be able to change color, the full ribbon board, uh, in the facility that will go all the way around uh, the four-sided replay board in the in the middle of the facility. It's it's going to be one of the stars of the show, I think, for Banya Cup and Grey Cup weekend. Uh, Jim, something Laval had, which you are going to be up against, is people being able to drive to the game. Yes, people from Calgary had to drive, but you mentioned Queens two years ago. They can make the trek up. Laval had a home game last year, and the fact is UBC, with that 2-6 and six record, haven't won a playoff game since 1998. Um, they are unlikely to play in that Vanier Cup game. So how do you guys look at promoting this where, quite frankly, you're going to have to get these fans flying in? Well, I think uh, we, we have a lot of people opting in with uh, their Grey Cup ticket. There's an opt-in uh, fee of, uh, of just $10, which is lent, really, when you take a look at it. So everyone that's bought a Grey Cup ticket has the opportunity to pick up the Vanier Cup ticket, and, and that will put a lot of uh, bums in seats, uh, first of all. Uh, the, you know, the second thing is, is that what we've seen out of the Grey Cup is it's not dependent on having a home team uh, be in the building to make it a success. Uh, the Grey Cup's already sold out. That was announced last week. Uh, the one the previous year in uh, in Edmonton was sold out in the space of a week. So the thing that we're working towards with the uh, with the Vanier Cup is to make it uh, a national championship where we're not dependent on having a Western team in uh, or a local team in to make the thing a success. And uh, uh, certainly when we surround ourselves here with uh, the people with the Grey Cup Festival that know how to pull these things off, that gets us one step further towards that goal. And what have we learned from Laval getting 16,000 people? What did they do right over the last few years? Well, I think with uh, Laval, it's uh, it's a unique situation in terms of uh, the way they operate their uh, football program. Certainly, Sherbrooke has, uh, has uh, emulated that, and they draw... Uh, a sellout crowd of 6,500 to, to 7,000 per game. University of Montreal, uh, not a private, uh, privately run uh, uh, operation, but uh, they do the same in terms of their attendance. Uh, I think in in, in Laval, uh, the the strength of what they have there is that uh, they operate that thing like a junior hockey team, and it's the same group of owners uh, who own the Quebec Remparts that uh, basically own that um, that Laval Rouge or program, and they do it uh, within the uh, academic confines of uh, the University of Laval. So it's a win-win situation for everyone. Uh, I'd certainly encourage uh, more universities in Canada to start t- uh, taking a look at that model, at least from my perspective. I think it's something that works or, or it can be made to work. 
the, the thing about Quebec, though, Quebec City, is that, uh, you know, really they don't have an NHL team there. They don't have a CFL team there to compete with. And uh, they can really uh, they can really grab the headlines. The other thing is is that I know if you spent some, anyone out there that spent some time in Quebec, uh, they're more a little more liberal with, uh, with how they can how they can sell beer. Uh, they've they've, uh, they've created quite the atmosphere there in terms of tailgating and uh, and the fun in, in the stands in terms of uh, some people being excited. Uh, uh, buying two fours and taking them up to their seats, so it's a it's a bit of a unique situation there in Laval. I think I'm all for that. I'm all for that. Um, Jim, uh, how many tickets you guys currently sold? <clears throat> uh, right now, we're going through uh, through our accounts. Um, uh, quite frankly, uh, there's three sources out there that uh, that uh, we have to get reports back in on. Um, we'll be ready to uh, to roll out a number uh, fairly soon, probably around September first, and that that's when we'll uh, have a better idea of uh, of uh, what we'll have to uh, sell to the public. But I can't actually give you a core number right now because the numbers change every day. Uh, September second, you mentioned September first. September second, the Canada West season gets underway. Um, let's talk about. The UBC Thunderbird football team this year, Jim. It's a tough start for them at the beginning of the year on the road at Regina and at Calgary. Their first home game, not until September 17th versus Alberta. UBC in the first year of the Sean Olsen era, two and six. Once again, I've already mentioned it. Haven't won a playoff game. This is disgusting since 1998. Uh, Does that change this year, Jim? I think... uh... Quite frankly, I think if UBC doesn't go five and three, uh, there will be many disappointed people. I think uh, they've got the roster to do it. I think they've got the coaching staff to do it. I think Sean Olson, as uh, uh, as a head coach, probably gone through that learning curve uh, where where he made uh, probably certain calls and certain decisions uh, last year, where where it uh, probably helped him refocus going into this year. Uh, Billy Green is a top-rate quarterback at this uh, at this level, uh, and uh, certainly things have opened up over the last few years. And uh, the uh, athletic department can take credit for this in terms of uh, making sure that uh, they have uh, more versatility in who they can bring into the program. Um, certainly, there are some mature students out there and some. Uh, and some junior football players who would love to get into an institution like UBC, and uh, they were kept out uh, in, in previous years. Those doors are starting to open up now, and that certainly helps uh, with the recruiting. So uh, I think that uh, there, there are lots of good parts in place for uh, Sean Olson and his staff to work with. And, uh, and personally, as I sit here wearing my UBC football shirt while I'm doing this interview, uh, I'm certainly hoping for uh, a second or third place finish for this team. I'd actually like to see them host a, host a uh, playoff game, and I don't think that's out of their reach. Okay, and uh, the defense, Jim, you mentioned Billy Green, fourth-year quarterback. This is pretty much the year he's got to deliver. Uh, the defense last year, though, 32 points per game, last in yards against 489. Ugly numbers. Ugly numbers indeed, and that's one of the reasons why uh, when I take a look at uh, at UBC, I say they can finish as high as second or as low as fifth. 
the defense is the one with the question marks uh, out there. Certainly, you get a guy like Jerome Erdman, who's got CFL experience as a as a uh, as a coach, uh, taking the helm there as uh, the defensive coordinator. Uh, he's obviously uh, another individual that's taken a look at the staff and has learned about. Uh, the uh, personnel that he has on the field, and he's going to find a way to make things work. I've got a lot of confidence in uh, in Jerome to make things work there on the defensive side. I, I, they've got nowhere to go but up. Let's put it that way. And uh, uh, you mentioned Billy Green in his uh, fourth year back on the offensive side as quarterback for the Thunderbirds. Uh, you said if, that, if there's a year to do it, it's in his fourth year. He's got a fifth year too. So there's still some room for growth for the. Uh, uh, for the offense and the defense. This year may not be the year. It may actually be uh, the following year for this football team to uh, really register something, I think, in the uh, Canada West and find their way through uh, to a, a hearty cup game. Uh, Jim Muller with us right now, uh, director of the Vanier Cup. Jim, um, you almost lost UBC uh, to playing in this in this league, uh, as early as next season, uh, the decision came out on uh, Tuesday. I think it was like April 17th. Uh, President Stephen Toop decided that UBC will be staying in the CIS, at least for the definite future. Um, why? I know, Jim, you are so pro-UBC staying. Why was this a good thing? Um, and I also want you to answer, Jim, why was this a good thing? Outside of football, because there are a lot of sports played on this campus. Why outside of football? You can pitch football too, but you got to throw the other ones in there also. Well, we can we can talk on a sport by sport basis, and we and you and I have talked about this on a sport by sport basis uh, before at uh, at UBC, and it benefits some, and it doesn't benefit others as much. Uh, that uh, that UBC stays in the uh, CIS. I can talk about the positives and and you know here i am sitting um you know planning for a vanier cup a national championship a national championship which will be televised coast to coast to coast on tsn uh, they are involved in a league that gets uh, television uh, you know straight into your living room on a regional and national basis in this country and as much as people may want to discount the impact of the, of the CIS on the old sports totem pole, the numbers are very good. 789,000 people uh, watched the Vanier Cup uh, last year from Laval. And you know what? That was at a 9 o'clock kickoff time, Pacific time. So people are watching these games. Uh, people are, are, are having an opportunity to, to engage in what the CIS does. And, uh, and certainly aspiring to a national championship in your own country, I think, has, uh, has, a, has a great deal of value. I think the CIS still has a lot of work to do in terms of uh, the way it packages itself and the way it markets itself. But just here with the Van Cup, bringing it to Vancouver, moving the championship game around, I think is a, uh, is, is a huge plus. Uh, I, I think it's also incumbent. On the uh, on the individual universities themselves to be more active and uh, more creative and finding a way to uh, to promote their events. It's it's far too easy, I think, uh, for some of the schools out there to blame it on on a Canadian brand uh, and and it not being an NCAA brand uh, to say that 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 is the reason why university athletics don't work at the gate. 
because certainly there are uh, uh, other examples out there uh, across the country where it does work, and it does work very well. Uh, so um, uh, the idea that uh, the NCAA would bring in uh, more fans in the stands, well, maybe you can talk to SFU about that, because so far on their NCAA venture, uh, basically what it's done is it's taken them uh, you know, off the TV, and uh, and uh, they've lost a whole lot of print space because uh, they're they're playing in a in a uh, in a conference where people don't know the competition. They're playing in a conference that really doesn't get much television coverage, if any, uh, in in Canada or in BC. And uh, the other thing that I might add is that uh, the one thing with uh, Simon Fraser we're seeing is. Um, they're going and uh, recruiting more American athletes. Uh, I remember Lauren Davies. I worked for Lauren Davies back in the early 1990s. Um, his thought, and I think it was it was there was a great thought and a great concept behind this, is that he wanted to offer Canadian athletes the opportunity to um, get a Canadian education, uh, to be supported financially. Because at that time, when he started things up, there were no scholarships out there. Uh, for uh, for Canadian athletes, but have the uh, American experience of athletics. Now it's flipped on its ear. Is, is, if you talk to anyone in, in those SFU programs, they're looking to the states uh, to uh, to remain uh, competitive, especially in football. And uh, you know that's uh, as far as I'm concerned, that's not developing Canadian athletes, and I think that's off the mark. But that's my that's my personal opinion, and they've got to do what they've got to do to. Uh, and survive. Uh, Jim, you obviously know more about uh, the way football is run than I do, and from the people I've talked to, uh, CIS football is actually doing much better um, than it has over the last, say, five years. Uh, you mentioned the Vanier Cup uh, live on television, but I don't think your SFU fan uh, point is that valid because for basketball, I know that. I know men's basketball in particular, Jim, they never got very many fans for men's basketball. And the fact is UBC is currently playing in a league where this year is going to be good, but next year, if, when they, if and when they keep the schedule the same, will be terrible because this year Trinity Western's coming, Saskatchewan's coming, Alberta's coming. They have a home-and-home with Victoria. But last year, Jim, we got to see Lethbridge. We got to see Manitoba. We got to see uh, Winnipeg. I mean, these are some really bad teams. And from the men's basketball perspective, this league, with all these teams they're letting in, is just going down the toilet. And President Toop has come out and said their goal is to keep the best athletes in Canada. Well, A, they're getting no movement on the scholarship issue, the last I heard. And how are you with this low-quality, so many low-quality teams in your league, how can you possibly say that by staying in the CIS that you're going to be able to keep the best quality of talent in the country. Um, they turned down NCAA Division One hockey, Jim. That would have got fans in the seats. You, I think you have to believe that, too. And let's face it, our best hockey players at the collegiate level, they don't play in Canada. They play in the States. We're losing them to that country, Jim. Our best hockey players at the collegiate level play in the Western Hockey League. They play in the Canadian uh, the, uh, the the second point that uh, that you made about basketball, I've read the documents and I've read the plans uh, surrounding uh, how CIS goes forward and how Canada West goes forward. 
to to make it very simple, and this is the thing that that uh, I would uh, hazard a guess that one uh, uh, President Tupover is that um, the Canada West is looking towards essentially separating the smaller schools from the bigger schools, essentially going back, uh, maybe not with the identical schools, but to go back to what it was with the, with the uh, old Canada West and the GPAC. So you'll have the larger schools competing against the larger schools, uh, the ones that, that, had that, uh, that, uh, that have more resources, and the smaller schools competing. With Jim, I have to. Schools. I have to. I have and, to. And yeah. you know, no, let me answer this, Daryl. Okay, go ahead. And, and on and on the on, on the uh, final point of uh, of scholarships, uh, there's a president's council being put together, and as we know in the NCAA, they are governed by a president's council. But in this case, there's a president's council being put together uh, to put together uh, a, a progressive set of uh, ideas together. On uh, on scholarships. Now, if I'm sitting in in, in the uh, position of you, if my president has told me that uh, that we're staying in the CIS for a while, I wait a couple of years and I wait and see if I get progressive change. If I don't get progressive change, uh, you know, then maybe it's time to go back and, and take a look at what the options are. But for now, there there are there are plans in place and there has been there has been progress made. On, on all those uh, on, on all those things right across the board. Um, <laughs> Jim, though, the, the which which point was I cutting you off at here? Hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't here, know, you should be you should be keeping track of this. <laughs> well, you wait. A minute. The, oh, the basketball. The problem with the basketball, though, Jim, is. They're going to make an absolute farce of the playoffs. Um, I interviewed Clint Hamilton, the president of the CIS, and he assured me that both leagues would have a chance to win a national championship, which sounds good, but in reality, you're better off to win a national championship beating Fraser Valley, who is going to be in this quote-unquote lesser league, because they're pretty much going to get an automatic berth to the national championship tournament every year because they're in this league. So... You know, I've, I've talked to Kevin Hansen about this. You're almost better off being Fraser Valley because, you know, you're going to have such easier competition to make it to that tournament. You, you, you're creating that that situation. Well, everybody likes uh, stateside, the small school coming up through uh, the NCAA tournament. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I guess you can't have it both ways. Um, you know, with in terms of... Um, in terms of the small school getting in, it was the old imprint of the GPAC uh, that that guaranteed that they had one berth as a conference getting in. Uh, I didn't hear anyone complaining back in the day when Brandon uh, was uh, was uh, winning national championships outside of some of their oddball recruiting tactics that uh, that uh, a uh, team from a small conference was getting in and competing quite well. At, uh, at a at a CIS national championship level, so I, I really don't see why why it should be any different this time around. If there's a small college loop uh, that uh, that manages to get in, uh, you know, gets in there and competes. And what it also does uh, for the UBCs and the University of Calgary's and the University of Saskatchewan's of the world is create a loop that. Uh, Hopefully, a active marketing department can uh, take advantage of 
uh, to get some butts in the stands because really I think the missing link in all of this right now, um, you know, especially at UBC, is student participation in the stands. And uh, and uh, if uh, UBC really, you know, does want to take a look at uh, taking things up to the to the next level, uh, whether they take it up to the next level within the CIS or somewhere else. Uh, you know, student support has to be there. Uh, the, you know, the, the athletics department has to be in a position where it looks like it's really wanted and embraced on that campus. Uh, and Jim, uh, back to a point you made earlier. I believe it's that we're up to twenty-five percent of, NC- of uh, NHL first-round draft picks are coming out of the NCAA. Yeah, you know what? Uh, you, honestly, uh, if if we want to get into that argument about the NCAA. Uh, versus uh, versus the Canadian Hockey League in terms of providing. Do you really want to go down that road? <laughs> well, no, but I'm just saying that 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 <laughs> I mean, that's my point, though. <laughs> I mean, if if you want to see the best developing hockey players in the world, there's a place called the Pacific Coliseum in this town where you go see them. Yeah. And and we know that 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 in this country, that's the way it's done here. Uh, there's certainly the option that, uh, and I was involved with the BC Hockey League. Uh, for quite some time years ago, where it is a good option for uh, for players to, to make the choice and go to the NCAA. But, you know, at the same time, I, I think uh, what the CIS has put together, uh, along with, uh, along with uh, the Canadian Hockey League in terms of their uh, scholarship program, is outstanding. And, uh, and certainly if you're judging just based upon hockey itself, uh, the CIS product's a pretty good product. Uh, if you have a good product, then then the uh, then it's incumbent, then it sells well at the University of Alberta. They win. Uh, they put people in the stands there. The same thing applies to the University of Saskatchewan. So I think it's incumbent upon the schools to find a way to sell this. I think it was a real lost opportunity, personally speaking, uh, for for um, for UBC. To uh, to launch that beautiful new uh, hockey arena and not really create um, the the uh, the demand or the perception that that, that they could create a uh, a uh, a real event in that place to really launch it and push it off. I mean, it would have been nice to have a few thousand people in that new arena as the uh, as the hockey team started their uh, their journey in it, but. Uh, um, you know, it's unfortunately it's the best kept secret, the best kept sports secret in Vancouver. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that uh, that someday they'll they'll find the resources to turn the corner there. Yeah, it's going to take the whole league though to do it, Jim. Um, lastly, uh, the NAIA. Uh, there is a chance that it is going to basically be absorbed by the NCA in the next three years. And, you know, you may say UBC might look at going down the road, but it might be too late for Terry McKagan, the men's baseball team. Uh, by staying in the CIS, Jim, this team could be destroyed in the next three years. Yes, it will be a club team, but the most promotion this school has ever had for an athlete is Jeff Francis pitching Game 1 in the World Series in Boston. And I'm sorry, you're not going to get a Major League Baseball first-round pick coming to a club team. Steven Toop's biggest legacy in this We'll see what he does in the CIS, but he might be go down as the guy who killed UBC baseball. That's how I well, look at it. Uh, yeah, that, that, I think that's an overstatement. And the other thing is, how's that, that an that, overstatement? That, no, no, no. Hold on here, Daryl. I think the one the the, the one thing that uh, that you have to realize is the, the CIS 
does not want to have uh, dual membership with the NCAA as so far it pertains to sports that they offer. Uh, baseball is, is a sport the CIS doesn't offer. So this, the, in, in the case of baseball, that really doesn't apply uh, to, to, to the debate about the CIS and the NCAA. But, Jim, the, the team's done. They have nowhere to play. They have no league to play in. Hello? And, and your point is? Well, that's the, by, by staying in the CIS and hoping they make the changes, you're jeopardizing this whole baseball team. Well, maybe it's incumbent then on the, uh, on the athletic department if uh, baseball is of key importance, and it's a fantastic program out there. And I, I know you've been, uh, you've been uh, tied to it over the years and managed to get out there and uh, travel with them and call play-by-play and, and, uh, and really promote the product. And uh, Terry McKegg's done an outstanding job there uh, over the years. But uh, in terms of baseball then, I think what uh, has to happen, if it's of utmost importance to the athletic department, is find those other sports that the CIS doesn't offer and, and find a way then to, uh, to, to compete in the NCAA that way. If it's enough of a priority for them to do so and it makes financial sense, then they should go down that road. I still think it'll happen. Uh, Jim Mullen with us right now. Jim, thank you so much for doing this today. Very much appreciated. Anytime, Daryl. <laughs> awesome, Jim. I do appreciate today, though, Jim, and we'll talk soon, all right? Okay, sounds good. All right, uh, that was Jim Mullen. Uh, great having him on the show today. Yeah, we do disagree, um, but uh, one thing is uh, CIS football is definitely doing better than it was a short years ago. Once again, Jim, the director of the Vanier Cup, uh, that will be taking place the 47th Vanier Cup, Friday, November 25th at Vancouver. All right, everybody, we are going to take a break here. Uh, very quickly, when we're back, we're going to talk Entourage with Emmanuel Shrieky. You'll see to 101.9 FM. Whoops, all that. <laughs> Having a little trouble with uh, what's playing today. Um, well, I think we're just going to, hopefully this works, we'll just jump into the interview with Manuel Shariki. Um, I should say okay. that this interview uh, did take place last Wednesday. Um, Emmanuel Shariki, of course, from Entourage. Uh, we will get into Season 8 of Entourage. Um, she, of course, plays Sloan, uh, E's girlfriend. We're going to talk the Entourage movie, uh, being on set for the last scene of Entourage, and her favorite uh, Entourage cameo appearances, and uh, basketball. So without further ado, here's my interview with Emmanuel Shrieky. Okay, uh, with us on the line right now, a pleasure to have her on, Emmanuel Shrieky. Of course, she is Sloan from Entourage. The final season, season eight premieres 10.30 p.m. on Sunday. Right after, I got to say it, I've seen it, a very fun Curb Your Enthusiasm episode entitled Palestinian Chicken. Emmanuel Shariki. Emmanuel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> What's so funny? I, 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 I'm just laughing. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, before we get uh, curb your enthusiasm, do you watch that show at all? I have. I'm not a big. Um, I'm not a big uh, TV watcher. Okay. Um, so I, I mean, I've definitely watched it on occasion. I think yeah. it's a great show, but I, I don't. I don't actually follow 
that many things. You're you're too busy living life, hey? To, you're, you're not, you're... <laughs> yeah, instead of watching TV, definitely. <laughs> really, really? You just insulted me there. Oh, no. Uh, with us on the line, Emmanuel Shriki. Emmanuel, uh, final season of Entourage, season eight. Uh, what can the fans expect here? Oh, man. Um... It, you know, this season, it's one of my favorites, uh, and it, it has a lot of surprises. I think it'll wrap things up beautifully for the fans. Um, my character in particular is probably the feistiest you've ever seen her, um, which was really fun. And uh, it ends with a bang. Nice. Okay. It's, it's, it's been built up. Um, Adrian Grenier uh, recently quoted, and everybody's saying that there is going to be an Entourage movie. Uh, he's saying it will definitely happen. Can you comment on it? And do we know if Sloan's going to be in the movie? Can you tell us anything? Um, I Listen, they're, they're definitely um, talking about a movie. All the powers that be are talking about a movie. So that that's not even a rumor. That's real. It's nothing is definitive. Um, yes, I am fairly certain Sloan would be a part of the film. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. You you've been in. I, I just looked it up on IMDb. That's my source here. You were in twenty six episodes of Entourage, uh, the fourth most of any of the non main five characters. Um, what's it looking back now? Because you you are done shooting. That you were a part of such an iconic show. What's it? What's that? Yeah. What's, what was that like? It was amazing. It was beyond my wildest expectations. Um, you know, when I joined the show, I just I had no idea what it would be because you know when I joined at the end of second, it was popular, but it hadn't reached its pinnacle yet. Um, and you know, it hadn't been syndicated. It hadn't. It kind of didn't even blow up internationally yet. So. It was kind of been a wild ride. Let's put it that way. I started it, and it was supposed to be three episodes. And uh, it's crazy to think that I've been a part of, like you said, this sort of iconic television show. Six years later, here we are. So when you started, you thought three episodes, and that might be it, hey? And then it just turned into 26, and you're an iconic character, Sloan, by the end, hey? Yeah, I mean, I, I think iconic is, is a very <laughs> big word. I think the show has definitely is definitely iconic. I okay. think Sloan was a definitely well-received character, <laughs> and that's been cool. Um, final episode that was shot. Um you don't have to tell us if you were in the scene or even in the episode or anything, but were you on set and what was it like be if you were there for the final episode and were you there for the shooting of the final scene? I was. What was that like? It was um it was crazy. When you hear and that's a series rap on Entourage, it it was kind of like uh, uh hold on, what? Like, whoa, just like that, it's over? It was crazy. It was very sad. It was sad. It was celebratory. We had champagne. We had a huge cake. Um, you know, it, it was so fun. The last day, there were so many people on the set. It was crazy. Um, yeah, it was kind of weird, but it was a special day. Awesome. Neat atmosphere, hey? Yeah. Um told this cast is very close. Are you going to stay in touch with any of the people and who? Yeah. Kevin Connolly is one of my closest friends. Um, 
Jerry Ferrara and I are really close. Um, you know, I mean, Perry Reeves. There's so many people. Yeah, there, uh, Doug Ellen. There's we've become close and there are, you know certainly those it will always be a pleasure to see them out and about and then there are those where it's just like part of part of my crew you know right on um you take a memento from the set any any uh, souvenir from the show entourage i had the poster of the final season uh it was awesome the cast had signed it and the producers and the, and the creator had all written something on it, which I'll frame and put in my office. So, so that's what you got. You got a signed poster, hey? You're a yeah. big, you're a big fan of the show. Yeah, of course. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, give me some of the. So you got like they wrote like little personal messages. Yeah, to you they wrote one? little personal messages that were really sweet. Um, were you ever obviously a big thing with Entourage is the cameos, um, the celebrities that came on the show? Um, any favorite moment for you? Were you ever starstruck uh, by the uh, uh, celebrity who was a cameo player on the show? Oh my God! Yes, when uh, LeBron James and Matt Damon were on set on the same day, I was kind of freaking out. <laughs> It was awesome. I mean, I it was it was ridiculous. That's why I was like, "Wow, this is really the coolest show on the planet." LeBron James, hey, Matt Damon, okay. LeBron, you're a basketball fan, then, hey? Yeah, I love basketball. Mm-hmm. Then who's your favorite team? You know, I, I know you lived in you lived in Toronto for what was it like eight years? So I don't know if it's the Raptors. You lived in Vancouver for two and a half. Yeah, uh, were the Grizzlies here when you? Uh, no, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a new basketball fan. I'm okay. a I became a Lakers fan living in LA. I would say about five years ago, and uh, it's just something I've discovered and loved. Like I recently discovered, I love going to basketball games. Like I'll go any like to go see watch a live basketball. I'll go anytime, and I don't even have such like a favorite team. Like people are hate to the Heat game. Um, I just love watching it. So I'm not I'm not like a dude knowing all the stats and this. Just- all right, that was my interview with Emmanuel Shriki. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break. You are listening to 101.9 FM uh, Entourage. Of course, airs on HBO Sundays at 10:30. We'll be right back in a jiffy. It ain't my fault that my money on a rise. It ain't my fault that it's stacking to the 
beast that's soft like tissue. Got my trucks on 22, color that is red and blue. Megan D up period and rock boy coming through. You know what I know, you hear what I hear. Don't be afraid, cause there's money, money everywhere. I'm rolling in the Seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven or is he in hell? That damned, elusive Pimpernel. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> right, everybody. Welcome back to uh, Wiener's Barber. Hey, hey, I'm talking yeah. to you now. Were, were you not listening? No. Really? Are we live right now? I played that intro for you. You're supposed to comment on it. Oh, I didn't even hear it. Did you not hear the song playing? No, no, I couldn't really hear that well. well what, what song was it? Oh, God. Hold on. See if you can catch this one, okay? Yeah. Okay. They seek him there. Those Frenchies seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven? Or is he in hell? That damned, elusive Pimpernel. <laughs> <laughs> With us on the line right now from Los Angeles, uh, Matthew Bass. Matthew, did you get that reference? I did not get that reference. I apologize. Did, did, are you Jewish? I am Jewish. So you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm on the weekend. I do watch Curb, yes. <laughs> well, the song coming in uh, was from Breaking Bad. Uh, see, uh, It's the song that Jesse was uh, listening to when he was playing off of the big sound system. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and the... Poem I just played you was when Larry was walking out of the room with Maja, and oh uh, yes, 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 the, uh, 
you know, I actually did research on that, and I wrote it down to talk to you about it on this show. <laughs> I left my notes at home. It is the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yes, the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yes, it is a play that took place in uh, French Revolution. Uh, it's a play written in 1903, set in French Revolutionary time. And it was actually the precursor that set up uh, Batman and Zorro. Yeah, the masked vigilante. We we both read the same Wikipedia site. We we did, and <laughs> what I love about it is we've just compared Larry David to Batman, Zorro, the masked vigilante. And I, I believe you argue that Larry David is the bald vigilante. Yes, yes, he does stick up for us bald men. Um, yeah. I go I go back to one of my favorite uh, bald Larry David moments. Of course, there was season one. Uh, ep- I'm sorry, episode one of this year's season eight. But I go back to. When he didn't give out the Halloween candy to, like, the 14-year-old girls, and they trashed his house with toilet paper. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they wrote, bald asshole, on the front door, and he complained <laughs> to the police officers, that's a hate crime. And the officer's <laughs> like, why is that a hate crime? And he's like, because it's a bald hate crime. And, and the officer, who's this big, tall, black guy, goes, uh, sir... I'm bald and I'm not offended. And he goes, well, Larry David says, well, officer, in the bald community, we don't really consider you bald. You do this out of choice. You do this out of a, as a fashion statement. And it's true. Larry it's David. true. <laughs> Larry David sticking up for the bald men. Um, Matthew, sticking with Curb Your Enthusiasm, and um, the, the episode was entitled Palestinian Chicken. Um, yeah. Do you think this was an episode that Jews, we did enjoy it more than other people? or well, I think it laughs were to be had by all, though. You know, I mean, ultimately, I feel like you need to understand Jewish humor and sometimes be Jewish to appreciate <laughs> it more than the average person. But I feel like this show dealt with a global issue, which <laughs> is the Jews and the Palestinians and the Mideast crisis that has been going on for decades and decades, and if not centuries, right? So I feel like, mo- and, and, and it was very basic, you know, they didn't get too deep into it. They just said, you know, Jews are on one side, Palestinians are on the other side, make a choice. And the whole episode was based around him having to make a choice. I, th- I think those are very universal themes, though. So I think it kind of went above and beyond just being Jewish to appreciate it. That being said, a lot of those yarmulke jokes, you got to understand the yarmulke to understand the humor in that. Because, <laughs> Matthew, I... We we've known. I've actually never really known that many people who will wear a yarmulke out in public. I, I'm trying to think of even anybody. I, I, I know I know a couple. <laughs> <laughs> you, I mean, you know them too. Yeah, we do, uh, don't we? They're, they're but, out there. You know, and look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes when I see them out in public with it, I'm like, oh man, like you know, you know, you can wear like a Yankees cap, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. You don't need to wear a yarmulke here. Uh, Matt, during sex, and I'm not going to swear here, but have you had a girl ever say, "I'm going to bleep the Jew out of you"? No, but I have had a girl ask me to speak dirty to her in Hebrew while wearing a yarmulke. Now, I don't speak Hebrew. I just know certain prayers from my bar mitzvah days. And I recited the hamotzi, which is the prayer for bread, seductively to her. And it seemed to work. Hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz. But you say it in a dirty voice. And, you know, it worked. Was this girl Jewish? No, she oh, was Catholic Mexican. Beautiful. That's amazing. <laughs> you, you, she didn't want she didn't want you to use Yiddish, hey? 
Lots of Yiddish in episode one, actually. Big Mother, for example. Let's get a nosh. But you know what's what's really amazing is, is you know, what you just pointed out, there's been a lot of heavy Jewish humor so far in this season, a little more than usual. He's getting his highest ratings ever. (laughs) You know? Episode 3 is one of the highest rated shows they've had in the history of the series. Because, and I think a lot, yeah. And and it's rare. That's rare for a TV show to get its highest ratings towards the end of its run. Well, and also, it beat out the Seinfeld episodes. I mean, that's unheard of if it pulled that feed off. Uh, yeah, th- th- I mean, Palace? to me, those are the best episodes in the fucking history of comedy. I pause part of my language. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, those couple episodes of Seinfeld were just out of this world. <laughs> and I don't think anything this season has has come to that level of humor. I haven't laughed out loud that hard the way I did for those ones. Yeah. Not to say that anything that these episodes haven't been that great, because, I mean, Sundays was outrageous. But it, it's, I kind of, I'm shocked that the the ratings he's getting for it, uh, which, which, which is confidence knowing that this be a season nine. Uh, Matthew, uh, he used the term, I, my name is Leib. That was great. I, I assume yeah. that's Hebrew for Larry. I'm David. What's your, what's your Hebrew name? I, I, I've got a couple. I mean, the standard for Matthew is Matt, Matt Titiahu. <laughs> Nice. Um, but the name I was given from my parents is Yisrael. Okay. My Jewish name. Israel. Israel. Like the great, like the great state of. <laughs> <laughs> um, episode three, truly fantastic. Um, favorite moment. I, I think the line has to be for me, I'm going to bleep the Jew out of you. I, I, I don't know how you can beat that line. I, I, I don't have a line as I do a sequence. Okay. My favorite sequence was her having sex with him and the stuff they were yelling, um, and then followed by him walking down the stairs, singing that song in his row, yeah. introducing the funk man as Martin, followed by them leaving and him at the top of the stairs having the fight with 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 with, with uh, funk house. like, oh, you yarmulke, pick up your yarmulke. Like, he was so evil up there on, on the staircase, you know? Uh, two quick questions here, Matthew, yeah. on it is, um, does this now open up other Jews? Because, of course, there was a scene where Funkhauser started to do the wine prayer after he did. And I will say, he did, like, the prolonged version for the food prayer, right? Yeah, yeah. Does that now open up the door when you're at a religious dinner to just uh, pop the wine glass before the prayer is finished? Are we allowed to do that now? Has Larry David, can, has Larry David opened up the door for us? I <laughs> I can sure as heck try, though. And also, um, where did Larry go at the end? Did he go with the two Palestinian sisters or the Jewish people in the protest? Or, yeah, and also, what would you do? I'll tell you what. If there's one thing I know from watching years of Seinfeld and Curb, he went with the Palestinians. (laughs) He's a man of principle. As a man of principle, he knows that he doesn't care about the religious conflict about any about that. He just wants his chicken and his vagina, and that's why he, I think he went with the Palestinians. And what do you do, Matthew? I go with the Palestinians ah! because I can I can make up with my friends later and explain to them, and we can get over it and move on because that's what friendship is. 
it's true, right? It's true, right? You'll you'll never you'll never get her again, hey? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you so you go to their side. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, Breaking Bad. Um, we can't talk about what's going on in the show because people are listening, and if people haven't seen it, it's not right. But how good is this show? And should anybody not watching it um, not be allowed to own a television set? It's, uh, I, I mean, it's the best show on television, and it's very quickly, I mean, it'll depend how the next few seasons unravel. It's very quickly been in my top three to top five shows of all time. And I was watching a movie recently, well, I was watching The Lincoln Lawyer, which is a, a decent movie that I recommend to With people. Matthew McConaughey. And, what's that? Matthew McConaughey. Yes, I love him. I find him very charming. <laughs> but anyway, so Brian Cranston is 